morning and welcome to episode five of the Contentious Regulatory Crime and Competition CRCC Spotlights podcast. Thanks for joining us again. Um, today we have an all-star lineup for you um, to talk about privilege issues, some early privilege pitfalls um, that come up uh, or that we've seen in the course of internal investigations. So together uh, with me, I have Colin Parsmore, our senior partner. Emma Sutcliffe, a partner in our contentious regulatory group, and Nick Benwell, one of my bosses in the crime team. So welcome, everybody, and thank you very much for joining. Um, so as I said, one of the things that we wanted to talk about was um, these early privilege issues. One of the first things that often comes up is defining your client group, sorting out your reporting structure. So Colin, maybe we can start with you. Why is it so important to carefully consider and define your client group? Uh, the importance lies in the fact that right at the outset, it is possible, probable that litigation privilege isn't available. Uh, and if that means that any legal advice privilege is available, then we have to remember the restrictions under English law arising from Three Rivers Number 5, that case from 20 years ago. And very briefly, what that does, uh, if you're dealing with an entity, as we usually are with these investigations, then you have to identify those within the entity who are tasked with getting legal advice because it's only your communications and interviews with those people that will have the benefit of privilege. And so you're running the risk, uh, however big or small you judge that risk to be, that you're going to be interviewing people without the benefit of privilege. So that's three brothers number five. Uh, we all know that two court of appeals, ENRC and JET2, have now said three brothers number five is wrong. Uh, unfortunately, our precedent system requires a visit to the Supreme Court to put it right, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. So Three Rivers Number 5, sadly, is still English law. But I, but I guess the, one of the key points from that, Colin, is, is, that, is that, that litigation privilege, if you can get home on litigation privilege, is, is yeah. much better for you because mm. clearly you then don't need to worry about the whole client group issue your interviews with your employees who would be outside your client group are nevertheless protected by privilege because your litigation is reasonably in contemplation. So if you can get home on that head, then, yeah. then that's much the better option. But yeah. Nick, why, why wouldn't litigation privilege be available? Because, you know, you might think if you're you know, not a privileged doyen like Colin, that um, if you've got a risk that's been identified, then, you know, it might very well be that litigation is a reasonable contemplation. Why, why wouldn't it always be available in a criminal context? Yeah, well, um, I mean, Colin's mentioned the Court of Appeal ENRC decision, and thankfully, we're on much better territory now in arguing that litigation privilege comes into existence than we were before that decision. Um, and so, for example, in a criminal context, uh, if it's clear that the SFO are interested in the matter, then it should be relatively straightforward to argue that you're reasonably contemplating litigation, i.e. a prosecution by the Serious Fraud Office. But I think where the challenge arises if, is in some of the grey areas around that. So if, for example, um, you've got a whistleblower and there's no indication that the authorities are at all aware of the issue, and you need to investigate whether what the whistleblower is saying is true or not, uh, then there's a possible question as to whether you are reasonably contemplating litigation in that scenario. There are certainly arguments 
for it because one might say well you know if the whistleblower is right in what they're saying then absolutely that will um, be heading down a line which which um, may well lead to litigation but the problem is that saying you know it may well lead to litigation may not be enough mm. um, to, to argue it's really in contemplation um, uh, and I think that that sort of ties in with the <coughs> there's a related question of whether there's a mixed purpose behind the two but um, uh, yeah, there's some tr- pretty tricky issues around that. But it's a it's a lot more um, tricky, Emma, isn't it, with investigations, reg investigations? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was going to say that in the world that I tend to occupy, which has no sort of criminal element to it, um, the reality is that litigation privilege just really doesn't kick in, at least not until quite late in a late stage. We do occasionally see it, for example, where we have live enforcement proceedings from the FCA and they perhaps approach to have a W and they start to put their case but beyond that I think we have to operate in a world where it just isn't available um, and that does create some real challenges. Um, the, the other big issue with that sort of case is if you've got a regulatory uh, investigation going on you often have a, a piece of litigation sitting alongside it um, and then the real question becomes you know are we going to have this meeting and this interview for the dominant purpose of the litigation or are we really doing it for the regulatory investigation um, and quite a lot of head scratching goes on around that it's really important to get that clear in everybody's minds before you have that discussion um, and I think also frankly just live with the reality that that interview may ultimately not be a privileged discussion. Yeah, that's something we we had um, we were touching on last week on the podcast. We had some, somebody Peter Lockwood from our employment team on uh, when you've mm-hmm. rather than as you say the litigation strand running concurrently, actually an employment process, a tribunal or a grievance process running alongside, and um, that's again causes that the issue that you were talking about just now. Emma. I mean. But from so from your side, given that sort of known issue, what does that mean for how you structure your reporting? Is is there actually any way to sort of effectively manage that? What do you do in practice? Well, I think having a very clear idea at the outset of who you need to speak to, the purpose that you're speaking to them, what you're talking to them about, is it about the litigation or are you just trying to shroud it in that, which we you know do see a fair amount of? Um, I think. Uh, recognising that there will be a risk that some of this material ends up in the hands of either uh, the FCA or another regulator or indeed a litigant and taking care in the kind of materials that you create as a result. Um, I mean, we'll perhaps come on to discuss this, but there is this age old debate about do you create something that's a bit of a hybrid between legal advice and factual record or do you just take the approach of we'll have a factual record and we'll keep the legal advice fully separate so that you don't get sort of contamination between the two um, mm-hmm. Colin and I debate this at length um, I mean the practical reality is that writing that note live when you're in an interview and trying to make it legal advice is really hard um, it's, so not, think, it's not impossible it, yeah it's and not, I, yeah and I think keeping some separation of the two is it's just a really a, as a sensible practical way to approach it and just picking up on on something actually we've mentioned a few times now including just then is about about interviews um and there's obviously a lot you can lot you can talk about with interviews but something that i've been thinking about recently what how does it complicate things when you when you start your investigation you turn to your client group and then it becomes clear or at least you have reason to suspect that a member of the client group 
um, might have important evidence to give on the contemporaneous facts or, or worse, you know, potentially, you know, evolves into sort of quasi-suspect status. Have you seen that, Emma? How, how did you deal with it in practice? Yes, uh, very commonly for small firms as well, um, where you may be advising a board or an exco or, or a group within that exco that's been created for the purpose of overseeing an investigation. And then it becomes apparent that one of those people perhaps needs to be interviewed as well. So I think the best way to do it is to make it clear when you sit down with them in what capacity you are doing that. Um, I mean, we'll come on to this as well, but you may also want to give some thought to whether or not they separately need legal advice um, and that may depend in part on whether they are the subject of the investigation or just a witness to it. Um, I mean there is I think it's worth having a discussion as to whether it's worth doing the interview. Um, some clients take the view that it's actually not. Um, on balance I would suggest you'd, it's better to know what they're going to say than run the risk of them saying something and then that potentially uh, you know, having the argument whether it's privileged or not and, and you just need to keep the records and the discussion factual. Um, I mean there there is another point about this which is um, there was a quote a few years ago from the head of enforcement at the FCA who, who got quite upset about the idea of law firms going in and speaking to witnesses and trampling all over the crime scene which is an expression I really hate um, not least because in the world I live in less so Nick it isn't a crime scene um, and it's well within the rights of firms to understand what risks they're exposed to. Um, now, of course, you may have to hand that material over, but um, better to know what, what's what's happening and, and understand the facts. But, so, Emma, sometimes I've, I've certainly had experience where, for example, the SFO will warn you off mm. approaching a witness from a civil law perspective because they want to get there first and preserve the integrity of the witness. So in a, in a, where you've got these parallel proceedings, mm. this, this becomes really tricky. And it sometimes means that you don't get the witness evidence uh, until very, very late in the day because the SFO is saying to you, no, we don't want you to interview that witness. And I, I, I don't know about you, Nick, I've never seen, uh, I've, I've not seen a situation in which the SFO's request has been tested in the sense of, well, what would they do if you did go and see that witness, or con contrary to their witnesses, I suppose there must must be a risk that they'd come after us. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I don't it's know fair to say... Is that, that overstating it? I don't know. Well, no, I mean, I think it's fair to say that it's an area where um, the SFO has been fairly robust in some of its statements. Yeah. That's um, a good word. That's a good and, word. And, <laughs> and has indicated, for example, that, um, you know, if the institutional company goes ahead with interviews then uh, the SFO would consider that to be prejudicing the SFO's yep. investigation um, but I, I, I think I take a, a similar view to Emma on that because the reality is that in in you know the vast majority of cases that's absolutely not what's going on you're not seeking in any way to prejudice their investigation but um, you know the company you know, it may be a listed company, um, it's got regulatory obligations and it needs to get to the bottom of what's gone on because it may need to take action, whether that's in relation to individuals or just inform itself as to what has gone on so that, you know, it consider consider whether, you know, it is going to engage further with the authorities on that. And I think it's a very unhelpful stance that might be taken. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, again, it's a difficult dynamic, but um, yeah. 
think there are generally ways in which if you if you built a sensible engagement with the relevant authority on that you can work your way around it yeah. so if we do if we do go ahead we decide we want to interview into the individual um do we nick do we need an ila will the ilas you know what will the ILAs expect from the company if they're appointed are they going to want to see briefing notes or you know other kind of documents that might have been prepared for the company yeah so so the issue of ILAs is 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 an interesting one um because you're absolutely right that certainly in a criminal context the majority of individuals whether they are potentially suspects or whether potentially just witnesses are likely to want their own representation and um there are all sorts of dynamics with the ILAs whether that's access to documents um or as you say access to their own interview notes the ability to see their interview notes to comment on their interview notes or to hold copies of them afterwards and then the question of um notes are privileged and who the privilege belongs to um because uh many of them may argue for example that the note should be subject to common interest privilege so that they have the ability to veto uh, any handing over of that document to the authorities where of course the uh, the, the institution uh, might well say, well, no, that's our privilege and we should have the right to determine whether or not to waive privilege over that document. Mm. So then for Colin, I guess, if we we act with a company, we've had an interview with an individual in ILA, if we, what are the risks if we, in deciding from from privilege perspective, um, and I think you probably know where I'm, where I'm driving at with that, what, what are the risks in, in sharing the note in the way that Nick just described? With uh, you mean with, with, with the ILA with the with the um, with the suspects? Um, it, it seems to me that the you can certainly share privileged material with the ILA and the suspect um, either under a formal common interest agreement or even just at common law. You can share privileged material so long as this is done on a confidential basis and pursuant to agreed terms. Now. If it's our privilege, uh, in the sense of our client, our corporate client's privilege, we want to keep control of that document and we don't want to uh, confer rights on the individual to use uh, that document for his or her benefit without reference back to us. So there's, in any uh, waiver situation like this, there's always a danger. You, you, mm. you are giving up your absolute control over the privileged material. And every single waiver case is, is an example of how that loss of control can sometimes come back and, and hit you in the face very, very hard. So you have to think about these things really, really carefully as to what, what you want to do with it. I mean, I'm, Emma, have you seen, what, yeah. what, do, you, what do you do? I was going to say, I think what's become very obvious from recent cases is that making that clear at the outset of any interview is really key. So this the idea of an up John warning um, and in particular for some of the more sensitive cases that have gone on recently around sexual harassment um, where, you know, there's some really tricky topics. The individuals being interviewed yeah. often do want to see the notes um, and perhaps it hasn't always been made clear 
who the lawyer interviewing them acts for and that's created some really serious issues so unfortunately upjohn warnings um, are very formal and they kind of set a tone at the beginning of an interview which can be unhelpful but i just think they're inevitable Um, and it's just it's just too important that it's clear who who you're advising and and the purpose of the interview notes Mm. i mean just sort of taking the interview notes point and just thinking about other places or other people to whom those materials might be disclosed. I'm probably going to, you know, we're running a bit out of time, so I think we're going to have to be a bit shorter than planned on this bit. But um, Emma, you know, are those are those commonly shared with the FCA? I know I'm going to I'm going to ask Nick about whether they might be shared with with other other parties. But do you commonly share interview notes with the FCA? Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is that. If it's not a privileged document, if it's a fact, factual record of a discussion, the chances are it may not be privileged and the FCA will know that and ask for it. Wherever there's a bit of grey area, the way most firms get around it is to say that they will provide it, but do so on a limited waiver basis. But for all the reasons we've just discussed, there is a risk with that. I have to say they can come in and do their own interviews anyway. So sometimes this point becomes academic. Where it's often more problematic is with final reports, because that's the that's the result of a lot of work. It would be a shortcut for a regulator to see it. Um, and that's actually usually a bigger discussion because reports can be privileged and can contain legal advice. So, again, it comes back to this point of be clear from the outset why you are creating it as well. If a document, whether that be an interview note or um, the, the report, for example, potentially under a limited waiver, what if, if that's shared with the SFO, um, what are the risks from doing that on the criminal side? I, th- I mean, I think whether it's um, whether it's a, a document that you've created or whether it's contemporaneous material, the issue is always the ability of the SFO to share that via gateways with other authorities so um, you know clearly if you are in waiver territory then there's a risk that the document over which you waive privilege ends up not just with the SFO but with other authorities whether in this jurisdiction or in others and you know we've certainly seen cases where you know for example the company has entered into a DPA in one jurisdiction being fully cooperative in that jurisdiction handed over a lot of material and then that material has been passed by the SFO to another jurisdiction and then led to prosecutions in that jurisdiction which you know ties into the much broader question of how you might then do um, deferred prosecution agreements in multiple jurisdictions but I think that's a, a probably a debate for another day. Mm-hmm. And, and Nick my understanding is uh, and I think the FTA is the same uh, these regulators won't normally uh, if at all accept a limited waiver of privilege in other words they won't bind themselves not to accept privileged material on the basis that if for example the DOJ comes knocking for it they won't uh, hand it over pursuant to, to their gateways. So limited waiver against the criminal justice authorities, is I just don't think is there, is it? No, I mean, it, it's um, yeah, your ability to constrain is, is yeah. pretty non-existent, I agree. Yeah, and I think, look, I think um, for the civil litigants, um, if there's a parallel proceeding, I think the thing we just also have to be mm. mindful of, if you undertake a limited waiver to a regulator, 
Uh, and we've now got that decision from Mr. Justice Waxman earlier this year, PCP against Barclays. You do your limited waiver to the SFO. They use some of that material in a criminal prosecution. It enters the public domain. There is a real danger for the entity that undertook the limited waiver that if they then seek to rely on this same formerly privileged material, they are nonetheless taken in certain circumstances to uh, have, have waived the privilege themselves in the civil proceedings, and that can then open up all sorts of problems with collateral waiver, um, which is mm. uh, something that now has to be factored into the decision, uh, should I undertake the limited waiver? So it, it starts to get very, very complicated, and uh, ramifications uh, come out of this that you, you, you sometimes can't foresee. So it's very, it's very tricky, all of this, isn't it? Yeah, mind it is. I think we've solved it all, haven't we, on this podcast? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if only. If yeah. only. Um, you, Colin, you have queued up very nicely a sort of parallel proceedings um, specific episode that we are looking to do in the new year. So that's something to look out for if that's piqued your interest. And I think that's I think that's all we've got time for today. Um, thanks so much, everybody. That was excellent. It was really interesting hearing everybody's perspectives on those things. Um, I am going to close today with a, a cheeky little trail for the next episode, which is going to be on culture. Um, I think we're going to try and get that one in before Christmas, but if not, we'll be joining you with that one in the first week of 2021. Terrifying. Um, so, yes, please be just to say thank you again, everybody, and call to see you again soon. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks. Bye.